Hi, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show dedicated to policy analysis in international affairs. In today's episode, we turn our attention to the country of Myanmar, where state persecution and escalating violence against the Rohingya population is causing a significant humanitarian crisis. The Rohingya are a Muslim ethnic minority group from Myanmar's Rakhine state, southeast of Bangladesh, who have at times numbered over one million. Now, officially, Myanmar's government does not recognize the Rohingya as lawful citizens and has denied them citizenship since 1982, which effectively renders them as stateless. Uh, Attacks on the Rohingya have been systematic and widespread, reportedly at the hands of the Myanmar police and military, leading to what the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has called a, quote, textbook example of ethnic cleansing. The ongoing violence has resulted in a mass exodus from Myanmar, with over 600,000 Rohingya refugees having fled across the border to Bangladesh since the end of August. Thousands more reportedly remain stranded in Myanmar without the means to cross the border. The daily influx of Rohingya refugees into Bangladesh is presenting a significant challenge, as new arrivals are adding massive pressure to services in existing refugee camps and in makeshift settlements. Basic services are now badly outstripped, including water, health, and particularly shelter and sanitation. Conditions in the settlements and camps are now so critical that disease outbreaks are a looming prospect. Now, to help us explore the humanitarian efforts being undertaken to address the Rohingya refugee crisis, I spoke with Usama Khan, the Director of Finance and the Deputy CEO of Islamic Relief Canada. Osama Khan, thank you very much for joining us on Policy Talks. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about uh, Islamic Relief Canada. So Islamic Relief Canada, uh, we began operations here in Canada in 2007, and uh, we're part of a broader family of um, affiliates across the world. We have offices in 40 countries. Uh, Islamic Relief, the family, has been around uh, for more than 30 years now. And uh, essentially our mission is uh, to help people uh, the vulnerable, um, both locally and, and around the world. Um, and, and we've uh, had quite a, a success story here in Canada since we began operations. Um, we're at uh, close to 38 full-time staff now and uh, more than $45 million in revenue um, in 10 years. So um, we've been able to help a lot of people, both from a humanitarian emergency aid standpoint and development uh, standpoint uh, throughout the conflict zones around the world. So... Um, we're talking about the the uh, refugee crisis um, with the Rohingya population. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the work that Islamic Relief Canada has undertaken in response to the crisis that is unfolding in Myanmar? So we've been uh, on the ground um, both in Bangladesh um, and in Myanmar uh, long before kind of the uh, spike uh, in. Uh, the displacement happened in August um, uh, over the last uh, that been operating uh, throughout Bangladesh, both on the southern border of Myanmar um, as well as throughout Bangladesh. So we've had a, a presence of our 
uh, Islamic Relief uh, affiliated staff um, in those countries. Um, as you know, the uh, Rohingya have been uh, going through uh, the issues, um, not just this year, but uh, from from decades. And uh, this population has remained uh, vulnerable. Um, and we've um, kind of provided food um, over the last few years, as well as uh, mobile health clinics uh, to help the displaced population. And uh, after the escalation in the number of displaced people um, since August 25th, we've worked um, on both sides of the border uh, to help those that are needed. We've had uh, numerous staff members uh, visit the ground on both sides of the border. Um, Our CEO was uh, on the ground, first in Bangladesh and then uh, over in Myanmar in the Rakhine State. Uh, about a week, um, first week of September, um, and me and two of my other colleagues um, also were there two weeks ago on the on the Bangladesh side. Uh, so we're there monitoring kind of what the needs are uh, as this displacement continues uh, on both sides of the border, and uh, and to try to help um, many people as we can. I want to return um, in a second to um, to your experiences, uh, recent experiences in Bangladesh, but. Um, First, just to get a general sense of, of your perspective of what's currently unfolding uh, in Myanmar and Bangladesh. Um, some people have referred to the Rohingya as um, the world's most persecuted minority. Uh, and uh, I was hoping you could share your opinion if you feel that that's a fair categorization, given, given the history of what uh, the, uh, the Rohingya have experienced. Absolutely. I think another trend that's used uh, that I've tried to read um, especially before August 2017, um, is they've been noted to be a forgotten, uh, it's been a forgotten uh, community, a forgotten persecuted community, and and that's certainly the case. I think when you look at um, uh, over the last over the last few decades, on um, how one specific community has undergone um, isolation, social isolation, economic opportunities. Uh, and, a, and a chance to live a dignified life. Um, certainly, uh, that has been the case. Many have uh, tried to um, escape um, to find better opportunities for themselves um, and their loved ones by fleeing uh, into Bangladesh or by uh, kind of crossing the treacherous ocean into uh, Malaysia. Um, but even their experiences after escaping um, Myanmar has been trouble for for a number of reasons. Um, so certainly, um, it's been, as a humanitarian organization, we've kind of, it's been on our radar uh, that you have a very vulnerable population that generally does not make it into the news, um, their plight, and, and it's only after August 2017 um, that it's really come at the forefront of what these um, millions of people have been living through for decades. Um, I mean, you have to understand that on on the Bangladesh side, the people who have escaped uh, kind of left their homes um, with nothing much on uh, with them. Uh, there's hundreds of thousands that were already in Bangladesh that had already escaped, and they'd been there uh, for many years, some uh, from the 90s. Right? And um, so I think that just gives you a context of this isn't something that just happened. Uh, something happened in August 2017, and it's just been a few weeks or a few months 
um, and things will go back to normal. So uh, I think the complexity of how long uh, these people have been facing these issues um, is certainly part of the story. So, so why is that the case? Um, why has this not been um, a story for, for a longer period of time? You know, that's a good question. Um, I, I think generally um, when you look at um, kind of what makes its way uh, to, the, uh, to the news um, on our televisions and our, and our laptops, uh, you look at sudden onset uh, emergencies, whether that's uh, an earthquake um, or uh, a climate-related event that happens and you have thousands uh, of people that are impacted. Um, I think those definitely make um, uh, make for a more uh, kind of real-time uh, compelling news story. Um, and, and really, this hasn't been, there was no sudden onset, except, you know, before this August 2017. Um, for more slow onset, uh, I mean, we face this even with famine, um, you know, in Africa, uh, because it's not an onset, it's a slow onset. Um, you'll notice that it doesn't um, necessarily capture um, capture the same attention uh, on the news media. But, but from a humanitarian standpoint, it's what these people are going through and have been going through um, from the basic, uh, from a lack of basic human rights uh, standpoint, um, certainly a story there for Canadians and the rest of the world. When we consider the violence that is occurring and that has occurred um, in the past, um, is it fair to say that what's happening with the Rohingya um, is ethnic cleansing? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, that term has been used um, uh, by UN officials. Um, as, a, as a humanitarian organization, we uh, try to stay uh, as apolitical as possible um, uh, because it enables, for us, our, our primary focus is the humanitarian need and, and providing um, relief for those that are suffering. Um, so certainly... Um, Kind of as an organization, we certainly don't take sides, and we try to stay away from uh, language, um, from that, uh, such language. But um, certainly, you have a uh, a ethnic minority in that country um, that, just from the imagine needs uh, standpoint, um, has been suffering uh, and has been deprived of of basic rights um, of, of food, shelter, safety, security, and livelihood uh, for a long period of time. So um, jumping back to uh, your recent experience in Bangladesh, um, I want to explore a little bit what the situation currently is on the ground. Are there any capacity issues, or I, I assume there must be capacity issues. Can you describe what the capacity issues are right now in dealing with not only the population that has crossed the border into Bangladesh, but then trying to manage the daily influx of more refugees coming over from Myanmar? Yeah, so these, um, when you, when you um, go into that region, um, it's a beautiful region because it rains a lot. Uh, and so there's a lot of um, you know, lush greenery. Um, and even when you look at it on a map, that area is known as the Technafi Game Reserve. Um, so there's wild animals there. It's a very hilly area. Um, it rains a lot, and that provides challenges um, because all of these uh, refugees are confined uh, geographically into one small area. Uh, that's uh, so they're not free to um, kind of move or move around in, in Bangladesh. Um, certainly, the government and the army, the Bengali army, um, 
has restricted um, where all these refugees are to, to one small area. And so you have upwards of a million people um, in essentially makeshift uh, tents, uh, just of bamboo sticks and tarps, uh, in an area that's not flat land, uh, in an area that's uh, extremely crowded, um, and uh, all trying to, to survive there. I know in the weeks uh, right after the, the major influx happened, uh, at the end of August, early September, it was certainly a very chaotic situation. Um, right now, when we went two weeks ago, um, certainly the, the government and the army apparatus have um, organized um, a lot of the refugees into, into camps. Um, and in terms of distribution of food, um, it's certainly a coordinated effort now. Uh, you see a lot of the international uh, NGOs uh, responding, um, uh, but the issue is it's not a there's no short term. Uh, it seems like it's going to be a long term need, and and so um, uh, so the challenge remains. I would imagine, um, given you have all of these people in such a confined space, that the outbreak of disease. Um, like cholera, for example, uh, is a is a serious concern. Uh, are there any measures that are being taken specifically to ensure that 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 risk is mitigated? Yeah, I think that's a great point because I think um, when you look at food and shelter, um, food, shelter, and health. Uh, certainly, when we were there, um, uh, just in our observations and in talking and uh, talking to a lot of the actors, um, that's something that um, has been given priority. Um, now, sanitation facilities um, uh, and open sewage, and 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 how the waste uh, is 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 kind of contained to ensure an outbreak of that doesn't happen. I think that certainly has been identified in the humanitarian community as one of the highest risk areas now, and an area where uh, the most amount of um, kind of need and funding is required there. Uh, to build sanitation facilities so that the disease of um, uh, the spread of disease is, is uh, minimized. So when we consider the, the the situation, the response of international organizations such as Islamic Relief um, and Islamic Relief Canada, I'm curious to know, is there a leader in this effort and is the leader in Bangladesh, for example, the, the government of Bangladesh um, in managing the, the, the settlements or the, the area um, where the, uh, the Rohingya refugees are currently living? Absolutely. I think um, on, on the Bangladesh side, um, as I was saying, that the area where the refugees are uh, is restricted. And so there's army checkpoints. Um, and even to provide food or any sort of aid, um, you're obligated to work through the bureaucracy uh, to get permission um, and to the court. Now, I understand the reasons they want it to be coordinated, so they don't want um, you know, tons of food going to one part of the camp, um, whereas another part of the camp, some other refugees haven't received them for a week or so. Uh, so some of that coordination um, definitely uh, is required. Um, but yeah, to, for any international NGO to operate there uh, and to provide aid, um, you do have to work through uh, the government and, and to obtain uh, permission. Uh, but certainly from a Canadian donor standpoint, uh, the response has been excellent. Um, even before the minister announced the, the matching fund, since August 25th uh, to November 9th, um, we've raised $3.2 million 
uh, specifically earmarked for the Rohingya. Uh, so certainly uh, this has caught the attention um, of Canadian donors and, and they have been responding generously. We'll have more with Osama Khan after a quick break. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. This is the first time a Canadian Prime Minister has been given the opportunity to meet with you as a group, and I hope this marks the beginning of a closer, stronger partnership between us. In light of events in Myanmar's Rakhine State, I've named a special envoy to the region. I've asked him to engage in diplomatic efforts and identify ways in which Canada can support the response to the situation and the plight of the Muslim minority. Canada will continue to support ASEAN's humanitarian and political efforts to find a sustainable and just solution to the ongoing crisis, and we will also continue to work with the governments of Myanmar and Bangladesh to allow for the safe return of displaced peoples. During my excellent discussions with the State Councillor, we discussed the importance of the recommendations put forth on the final report of the Advisory Commission on the Rakhine State, which will help chart the path forward towards peaceful resolution of the conflict, and we've discussed how Canada can help achieve this goal. You see, in times of crisis, Canadians are prepared to lend a helping hand to their neighbours and their friends. It's not only what we do, it's who we are. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking about the Rohingya crisis at the recent ASEAN summit. Recent events have seen Canada increase its engagement in Myanmar, perhaps most notably with the appointment of former Ontario Premier and Federal MP Bob Ray as Canada's special envoy to the country. As the Rohingya refugee crisis persists, Osama and I discussed what Canada's role can and should be moving forward. So um, I'm glad you raised the uh, the donor matching and uh, kind of the Canadian response um, because that's part of what uh, I want to explore with you on this topic. Um, thinking more broadly, um, do you think Canada, and I, I, I use that term broadly, whether it's Canadian organizations, uh, Canadian population, or the Canadian government, do you think collectively we're doing enough to address the, the crisis that's unfolding right now? Uh, or do you believe that there is more um, that we should be doing? I think um, when you look at the needs of the people, you have uh, a million people who um, there's there's no end in sight. Right? One thing is uh, to go through uh, a catastrophic event where you're fleeing with your family, um, potentially losing, watching some of your family members being burnt alive or being taken away, and you're running for a week, two weeks, uh, to find refuge. And uh, I think the part that is the most gut-wrenching is not knowing when this will end, not knowing that there's actually light at the end of the tunnel. And when you put a million people uh, in this predicament where they have young children and they have no idea what the future holds for these children, um, I think as an international community... Um, uh, we certainly have a responsibility to both provide them with aid uh, and assistance on an immediate basis, look for long-term solutions to make their lives easier, and and to think about um, how 
dignity can be restored for these people. And uh, both the international community from humanitarian organizations to the multilateral UN agencies uh, to all governments um, certainly have a part to play in, in both providing the immediate relief but also finding a solution so these people can return to their homeland, uh, live dignified lives. Um, what that roadmap is, I don't know. And um, certainly, I think Canada historically has played an important role, and I think in uh, today's geopolitical climate, um, the world need, needs more of Canada, uh, a Canada that responds uh, to humanitarian crisis around the world, a, a Canada that takes a principled um, leadership role in uh, fighting for the rights, um, human rights of, of people everywhere. And um, so, so while we applaud the generosity of Canadians and the matching of the government and um, the work that the government is doing to solve this um, crisis, I think more needs to be done when you look at uh, what the needs on the ground are. And, um, and so that's our ask for both all actors, uh, Canadians uh, and the government, uh, to continue to increase those efforts. You mentioned earlier um, kind of... Th- the current situation, there is no end in sight. There is no clear resolution date or resolution point, um, if if that's even a, a, a feasible thing, as a sense of, of ultimate resolution. Um, if we look to the future uh, and we consider the role that Canada can play, what what can Canada do to bridge from kind of the short-term humanitarian assistance to longer-term, more development-focused assistance? So I think the uh, like one of the things, for example, in, for the Rohingyas in Bangladesh, uh, they're not allowed uh, to do livelihood activities. Right? So they're not allowed to work in Bangladesh. And uh, when you look at, um, from a development standpoint, certainly I think with the Canadian government, the focus on women and girls um, and we know even from this crisis and any of the crises, women and girls are the kind of the, the demographic that suffers the most. And uh, certainly the, the programming and the funds that Canada does provide, um, certainly um, there should be a healthy balance of immediate relief, but also trying to um, look at it from a development standpoint in terms of education for these kids. Many of these kids, obviously, at this point, there's no schools. Um, and, and depending on how protracted these refugees are going to be remaining in those makeshift camps, you look at schools and you look at other uh, what we call psychosocial activities uh, where you bring all these kids together and you have activities for them just so they can, they can bring a smile to their faces and you look at the psychological impact that's on these kids. Um, and then to, to really find solutions um, to, again, restore the dignity of these women, girls, and, and all the people suffering and um, how they can return home and, and lead dignified lives. Um, I think that's that's the challenge. Now, is the responsibility for that, is that something that organizations such as Islamic Relief Canada can do, or is that something more dependent on um, government action? Uh, I, I would say that um, that's more government action. I think from an advocacy standpoint, um, international NGOs are sometimes um, 
they face challenges in terms of because there's a balancing act of uh, as I was mentioning, you need these governments, the host governments, uh, you need their approval and their permission uh, to operate uh, to provide humanitarian aid, and um, and sometimes uh, challenging these uh, governments to um, operate in a different way, um, which may or not may not align with their perceived national interest, can diminish the access that you have to these uh, to these vulnerable populations, and so. I think as uh, not just Islam Police Canada, but all international NGOs face this challenge. What we don't want to do is, um, uh, for the most part, lose that access to, to those that need the aid the most. And so we focus on that humanitarian need standpoint and, and we rely on others, whether it's governments and uh, international bodies, um, to uh, find a solution, uh, a long-term solution in um a right of return for the Rohingya. Do you think, um, and I know you, you've you've emphasized that Islamic Relief Canada, obviously, in its role is is apolitical. But mm-hmm. um, as a as a Canadian, uh, mm-hmm. the the Prime Minister recently appointed uh, Bob Ray as a special envoy to Myanmar to specifically to look at what's happening with the Rohingya. Um, do you foresee that uh, as having a positive impact potentially? in addressing some of the concerns you just raised? Absolutely. I think uh, both the Special Envoy and, and um, uh, Bob Ray has kind of made it a concerted effort, uh, even before uh, his international travels, to meet um, meet uh, representatives and organizations and, and the affected population in Canada to, to get a good understanding. Uh, and certainly the Prime Minister uh, visited and, and, and uh, sorry, not visited, but, but spoke um, to... Uh, the Myanmar leader, and um, uh, certainly, I think by dialogue and conversation, that's um, a good starting point uh, to see how again we can uh, look at, at at the at this population and see um, how we restore um, how we restore them into their land and and in a dignified way and a reconciliation um, within uh, the different ethnic tribes and uh, different religious people in, in Myanmar. So I think um, I think we're hopeful. I think as Canadians, we're hopeful that these steps uh, will lead uh, to some kind of fruitful outcomes in, in the not-so-distant future. I cannot disagree with you on that, and I, I certainly um, echo your statements. It's a good starting point, um, and uh, I think we just have to be hopeful and, uh, and you know, trust in in organizations such as yours to continue to do the work that you're doing. Um, I think we'll leave it there, but before I let you go, um, I just wanted to, uh, for those, uh, for our listeners who are, who are listening to this and want to uh, show some support to, to your organization. Um, what, what are the, the, the means? How can they, how can people contribute to Islamic Relief Canada? So people can go onto our website, islamicrelief.ca. Um, we have a, a Myanmar emergency appeal there. Um, and um, uh, as I said, Canadians have been very generous in the past and with this current crisis. Um, but these people aren't going anywhere in the near future. And so uh, whether it's food, uh, shelter, education, all of these needs um, are in a desperate, urgent situation. And so we encourage all uh, Canadians um, to go onto our website and, and, and to donate generously to this cause.
And uh, just to emphasize, um, the the matching that was announced by the government, that is for all contributions up until what date? Uh, until the end of the month. So until the end of the month, all contributions will be matched dollar for dollar? That's right. And and um, uh, the government was uh, generous to actually retroactively apply that. So uh, anything raised since, October, uh, since August 25th until the end of the November um, will be eligible for matching. Excellent. Um, well, I think we will leave it there. Osama Khan, thank you very much for sharing your perspective. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at PolicyTalksPod for updates and related content. This episode was made possible thanks to the support of the Carleton University Graduate Students Association. They provide us with the means to bring you the quality content that we do. The GSA represents the collective interests and promotes the general welfare of the graduate students of Carleton University, and they offer a suite of resources and services to help graduate students make the most out of their school experience. To learn more, you can visit their website at gsacarleton.ca. I'd also like to acknowledge the hard work of our production team, Hamza Haddad, Samran Roy, Kenneth Boddy, Rukia Mohammed, and Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Mm-hmm.